This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, I'm Maurice O'Keefe and welcome to this week's podcast, The Oral History of the Peat Industry in Ireland. Around the country, there are large areas that are covered in peatlands. And in the early 1920s, the government encouraged the development of these peatlands for fuel and to improve the quality of turf as a fuel. And in the 1930s, the Free State Government formed the Turf Development Board, later to become Board Namona. In this podcast, you will hear how local communities living on the perimeter of peatlands got involved in organised turf cutting. We formed what they call a turf society and I was one of the founder members of it. The first engineers to work with the newly formed Turf Development Board by the Free State Government in the 1930s. At that stage I remember going into an empty room nobody introduced me, nobody said hello I, I was told, go upstairs to room number so-and-so, that's your room. Todd Andrews, who fought in the Civil War in 1922, became the first managing director of Board Namona. Todd Andrews now, he surrendered to the Free State, and he was regular here because he got, took over Board Namona. The Irish government bringing German engineers to Ireland to teach the workers how to use the new machinery. Job spec was to uh, assemble the machines and to train in the, the locals. And you'll hear stories about the use of that machinery. Yeah, Terrible big, change. Big awkward machines and ignorant machines were what to be used by the tractor. The others was big wood front wheels, big round front wheels, that size, you know. De Valera's government in the 1930s looked to Russia for help before Bordnemona was set up. The Russian contacts began when Pierce Purcell and uh, Sir Purcell Griffiths uh, went to Russia before Bordnemona was formed. The migrant workers coming from the Gaeltacht. Two men from Galway, there were two great men to work cut off on one more of English. And the Nissen huts, which were used for the migrant accommodation. The other bog, Tehran bog, it started with what they called the huts. All people came from Mayo and Connemara and everywhere and lived there in my young time. And the setting up of villages for the migrant workers. I remember when they built the village, 
And I remember the day that it was blessed. And a huge demand for turf during the war years when it was brought from the countryside to the Phoenix Park in Dublin. During the turf at the time of the war, the big, remember the big camps on the Phoenix Park? I think that's it. And the local people who depended on the work that Bournemouth gave them down through the years. I was a bog man. I worked all my life on Bournemouth. So let's get started. In the early part of the 20th century, long before the government set up an organised turf cutting programme, what was happening in our bogs around the country? And how were people using turf for fuel? I asked engineer Jimmy Martin, who was born in 1915. They were simply hand hand won turf by individuals all over the country. And there would be a little bit of... Uh, 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 sales by these people in the local towns and so on and so forth until about 1933. The soft turf would be cut and spread on the bank. Una Sayers grew up in Latif Moor, West Kerry in the early part of the last century and she recalls the local people gathering the handmade turf long before the Turf Development Board was set up by the government. They'd spread that on the bank and there'd be a big, mighty, as much turf as you'd want for the year of that stuff. And then they'd get cattle or horses and drive it through that and toughen it. And it used to be beautiful turf because you'd have little bits of bogdale and everything in the turf dust. And then the men would come and they'd make drills of it. Through and through they'd make drills. And then they'd come out with a bucket of water and they'd shape every sod and make it into a sod. Leave it there and next sod and then do the whole. Leave that there, wire it in until it dry. Took a dry weather then to dry it. And they'd knocker it then, make the little hooks of it, you know. And um, dry it up, put it in a reek for the winter. We'd have turf, you'd have... A week of turf was long and from here too, because the sods were big. You know, they were made by the hand. Peter Stevenson, born in 1914 from Roden County Offaly, explains how the local community came together to form a turf society, the first of its kind in the country. We formed what they call a turf society. And I was one of the founder members of it. I wrote to, the, to, the, to the, a particular department who was concerned and I asked them what would give me particulars. Now, we formed this under the auspices of the, the department. I don't know what the department of supplies, maybe or something at the time. And we had to register, we had to have a secretary, a chairman, and so many members of a committee. We, we got contracts. We supplied Port Leash Mental Hospital with thousands of tons of turf. And we had to put the turf in. The lorries had to be weighed. Per, we sold it per ton, so much a ton. We contracted per ton. And the same with the army. Jimmy Martin recalls when the newly elected Fianna Fáil government set up the Turf Development Board and then appointed Todd Andrews as managing director. We'll, we'll call it a, a political decision. 
because so far as the Fine Gael side, it hadn't arrived at that stage yet, whereas Fine Fall side had lots of people who were countrymen and they were dedicated to uh, uh, the use of uh, uh, that type of activity. So um, straight off, uh, the development of peat became a, a very large matter. So then in 1933, when Fine Fall got into power, the first thing they did was establish a, a turtle development board. The government department had appointed Andrews as the person in charge, and Andrews ran it. And Andrews was a damn fine person, and I never had the slightest problem from him. And Jimmy Martin was one of the first engineers to join the Turf Development Board. Uh, well, I, I could only do one thing, and that's engineering of some description, so mechanical and electrical. I got qualified in '38. Uh, the next thing was to get two or three years uh, actual works experience. At that stage, I remember going into an empty room. Nobody introduced me, nobody said hello. I, I was told, go upstairs to room number so-and-so, that's your room. There was an, So I then had to go around the house and I found it, uh, 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 what call it, a table. I found a chair someplace, brought it in, sat down, and uh, then I rang two or three fellas and asked them, uh, what are you doing here, and so on. There were chaps I'd known in college, and uh, so inside about uh, three or four days, I had a, I, I, I had made myself a job. But otherwise, otherwise nobody. I was simply employed by Bonamona, but uh, no, <laughs> no, nobody said your job is so and so and so. I just had to invent one. His office was number twenty-eight Pembroke Street, Dublin, the same room that a British intelligence agent was shot dead on the morning of Bloody Sunday, organised by Michael Collins. Where, where was this chair and table? And it happened to be in the same room as the fella was in bed with his wife in nineteen nineteen twenty, wasn't it? Nineteen twenty-one, when Collins's fellas came in and shot him dead. Oh. I was in the same room. My goodness, yeah. So it's 20, 28 uh, Upper Pembroke Street, over the arch. Is that where you had your office? Yeah, That's where yeah. the office was. No, I found that out later, yeah. From there, you you started, and you had you had a big task on your hands, really. I had no task. But did you try to involve yourself? Oh, well, within a, a week, I was more than beginning to run things. Yeah, uh, I... Uh, I, I knew all the fellas, you see, so uh, I began to get bits of jobs from them and invented a job for myself in the board. And then then suddenly was able to do this, was able to do that. Or did I know about this, that and the other? And of course, I pretty well did. And uh, so that within about a, a fortnight or three or four weeks, I couldn't be done without. And that's, uh, that's what that was. The parish of Lullymore is situated in County Kildare and is surrounded by peatlands. In 1936, a factory was set up to produce peat briquettes, and in 1940, James Martin was sent there to take over operations. The assistant man, the manager at Lullymore Briquette Factory, 
was an Englishman and he uh, decided to go home, did so, and that meant that uh, there was an assistant manager required in Lullymore, so I was shut down there. 1940. Yes. I was shot down to Lullymore and uh, had to take up uh, and uh, uh, keep a factory running and a, a bog. And uh, then t- the question was, uh, double it and treble it and multiply it by, as you know, 20, ter- 20 to 30 times, uh, which I did in due course. Harris Miller, a native of Kent, qualified as an engineer in 1939. He joined the British Army, and after the war, he was appointed by Bordnemona as a technical development supervisor to run a experimental station in Newbridge. But here first, he tells us what was happening in Lullamore. We inherited Lullamore. Lullimore was owned by the peat fuel company, a private company, making briquettes from mill peat using a Danish method called the Pico process. And we, we meantime, were developing sod peat mainly. And it was a bit messy because the weather conditions in Ireland weren't as good as Germany or Russia for drying in the summer. They had better summers than we had. So they were drying turf much better than we were. And so, but we kept at it and we kept, we got one, two or three power stations going with the ESB. Uh, but in the meantime, we were developing, improving the millipede production in Lollymore and producing our own briquettes. And we, we, we quickly realized, in the ball generally speaking, that the production engineers realized that producing a ton of millipede on a dry basis, was cheaper than producing sub-peat. Yeah. The title of Technical Development Supervisor had a very wide connotation. So the first thing I did was, I was told that they, the board were going to let me build an experimental station in Newbridge. In fact, they'd called in an architect, and I started working with him on the design of the experimental station, and what I needed down there. And over the next two years, that was built and we equipped it and I started recruiting staff for it. Not only did I do that, but I every time something happened in the Board of Importance, I put my nose into it because I had, I had to make sure in my own mind that I was using the most modern technology and uh, information on science and technology to make whatever was happening work better. And I got to know the people on the bogs. And it struck me very soon that the board were in a very strong position because the tradition in the Midlands had been going on for hundreds of years of hand-cutting turf. So all the families there that were dependent on turf knew knew how to drain a bog and the board took over all this, uh, and they, the people they used at the ground level were the people that knew bogs and how to handle them, how to cut drains in them without falling in, all that kind of thing. And that gave the board a great strength. So when the board started setting up a, a bog drainage for machine turf, during the, it would take about five or six years for that bog to be set up ready for production. 
the people they used to cut the drains and to make sure things were going well were the local traditional people who've been working in turf for decades and decades. The Russian connection was vital to Bordnemona in its early days of growth. The Russian contacts began when Pierce Purcell and uh, Sir Purcell Griffiths uh, went to Russia before Bordnemona was formed. And uh, But I didn't go until 63 to Russia. But Kogan and Andrews went. Andrews went first. And then Kogan, uh, there were the several other visits. But none, none of us, you see, went to Russia, including anyone on the board went to Russia, until nearly 63 because of the Iron Curtain. So the Iron Curtain came down virtually soon after the war. And, uh, of course, Bordnemona was just formed, so there, there, no one could get near Russia at all. But we knew what was happening because um, I discovered, I was based in Newbridge, I discovered that they had a turf publication called Turf Annual Publishost. Which they and I wrote. I wrote to the Russian embassy. I think it was in London. I think somewhere, maybe in Dublin, to get copies of this turf magazine. And they sent it, even though there was an iron curtain. We used to get this magazine on in Russian. And I used to get the 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 son of the local doctor, Roan Tree in Newbridge, uh, could speak Russian. We used to do, do Russian translations for the army, and I get him to translate the chapter headings of this monthly magazine. Yeah and let the people in the board know, different departments, and if they wanted anything translated to do the whole thing. Local man Luke Dempsey remembers Todd Andrews' visits to Lollymore, and the village there was surrounded on all sides by the Bog of Allen, which required a bit of work to cross the canal during that time. I, I remember the poles put up to site for the factory, and we went up, my father and my sister, we walked up to where you crossed the canal, and there was... The skew bridge there. Was no, there. that's all gone. That wasn't there. There was a cot. Yeah. Did you ever see a cot for across the canal? It's just like a wooden box, and if the man come out, he'd have a big old long pole, uh, and you got into it and held your balance and he put the pole down at the bottom of the arm, pushed you over to the other side. Well, I thought I'd never would as near be drowned in my life and I was only about 12 at the time. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, uh, we, we went up and uh, the first man we met was Major Murphy who owned it, all that Lullymoor farm on Bob that the factory was built on. Right, and you saw the pegs guided. I the saw that there were there were like scaffolding poles with a, something to, bit of rag tied on top of them for sight, like a greenfield site. My goodness, yeah. Todd Anders now he surrendered to the priest dead, and he was regular here because he got took over Bordnemona, and uh, you'd, uh, you'd see in Dublin made me there where. Uh, uh, he went down to Kildare, or well, that would be down to here, you know. And he used to stay here, did he? No, he didn't stop. Asher Dublin is only 30 miles, yeah. and there was very little traffic that time. My father was working with uh, Bordnemona, 
He was works manager in a place called Larricrum Pond in North Kerry. And that's where Father Brian Starkin, a missionary priest, grew up. He was the son of a German engineer who was commissioned by Bordnamona to come to Ireland to set up the new mechanical machinery for use on the bogs and show the local people how to work it. In the early 20s, uh, when I think it was then called the Leinster Carbonising Company, began to develop the idea of, of mechanising turf cutting, basically. So the machinery that they had to get was only available in Germany and they were called baggers. They were kind of a tractor-like machine with two big wings that just cut and turned the turf. Uh, and my father happened to be working for that company that made those machines. Yeah. So he was asked to come over to Ireland for three weeks. I suppose he was a, a development worker of sorts because... Uh, his job spec was to uh, assemble the machines and to train in the the locals in maintenance of those machines. Right? Uh, and so he uh, he came to to Offaly. He came to yeah. Offaly, a place called Turon. Turon, which Turon, was yeah. a huge yeah, bog a big there. bog area, yeah, near yeah. Bura Bog, yeah, yeah. And that's where they they started. Two brothers from Ballinahown recall working with that machinery. Could you tell me now all the different machinery or all, all the different jobs that workers had on the ground? Well, they had the, the fellow that you could drive a miller at first. He'd be, the miller would be milling the piece back out. Mm. And then you had the offset miller that was edges. That was one, two machines. They were the first. Then you got the harrow. That's how to pull it along and double it out and dry it and go back in it the next day and dry it again and go back in it in three days about if there was a heavy coat of piece and that had to turn it and return mm-hmm. the, the spoons and the harrow they had a way of shoving it off like that and turning the piece over do you know mm-hmm. the next machine then that come along was a ridger now in our time when I started pushing it was a single ridger one blade up along like that and an uh, angle like that and it was sh- it sh- shoved the piece right out into the middle of the field. And there'd be another fellow coming along, but three or four, yeah, maybe four. It. No, wait a minute. And then we'd have to go to the headland and turn and come back and put the row of piece right in the middle of the field for the harvester. And the harvester then was the machine that picked it up and put it from one field to the other, five feet, one across, the other across the thread, until it put into the pile. The field was on the sixth field. That was the in, that was the. It was five the, the, fields the, the machine that. That was, that was the machine that worked in 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 when, when they were producing peas. Yeah. In your lifetime, you would have seen the horse pulling the plow. So I mean, to, to see this, this machine big machinery coming in was that was that a big change? That was a big change. Terrible well, big, change. Big awkward machines and ignorant machines. Were what they be used by the tractor. The others was big wood front wheels, big round front wheels, that size, you know. And you were trying to pull her around. I mean, you'd, you'd want to be able to pull her around. The steering was made of tubular, rounded, some sort of tubular, the steering wheel. And it rounded like that, and it welded in the middle, you know. Mm-hmm. 
And Daniel Egan recalls the amount of work he was doing on the Blackwater bog. It was all manual and it was piecework. You were paid for the amount of work you carried out. Well, I'll tell you what I was digging in a day, about 120 yards. Me, it was that time. And we had to dig it up, go back in and pick it out three or four metres from the brink of the drain where I was digging. Right. And d- did you have to cover so much No, ground? no, just pegged it out for so much money. I was never to make it up, but... And we had to go in then in a frost for as long as the frost had last for to get the wet time out of it. That was very low money. Top and save me that time. And if you lost a day in your week, you'd lose that. Your wet time. Oh. Cut the top and wheel it out when the bank with barrels and from the slain man. And then we'd have to save it and spread it and stuck it. And wheel it out in a kitchen barrel out at this man here, the road, in his lorry. Lo- Throw it down on the edge of the road. Come oh, back in and then, back in again, then five or six men. I'd, ba- I'd come in the, and I'd be out with the lorry and start filling it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'd have to, when I'd go to tourist dinner, I'd have maybe six or seven ton on it, or go to Nina, I'd have to weigh in there as Nina, and we over to the hospital with it, and I'd have to take off my coat then and open the crest because there'd be no help there. Yeah. Sean Delaney from Mount Malik worked all his working life at the Black Water Bog for Bordnamona. I was a bog man, I worked all my life on Bordnamona. All my, I'd done 38 years on board in the morning. I went in there when I was 19. So I went up to board the border in the latter end of 51. I cycled seven miles to work on bad roads, mucky roads. And we often had to walk two miles after. So and be there again eight o'clock in the morning. And if you were on what they call time rail, it was four pound a week if it didn't rain. And if it rained, you could have two pound or you could have three pound if you met wet days. John Joe Coyne recalls how that there were 50 houses in Welsh Island which were built for Bordnemona workers, all having enough of space to rear a pig. 50 houses. In 1939-1940. Inside in Welch Island? Welch Island. Four Bordnemona workers. And each house had a little piggery built as well that they could feed a few pigs. And I'd say every house in it fed them. Fed small pigs and brought them till they were fat. Sold them and they got a bit of extra money that they have when they were rearing families. And things were bad. A lot of people come to Welch Island that time would not know the clothes that was on them and just went into the houses. It on a, they had nothing in the houses when they arrived. No work, no nothing. And they were after being bummed out of England at the time, the time of the war. And here, John Joe Kine recalls the first days of Bordnemona in Clonsass. And if you went up that back lane in there, you'd go into the very heart of Clonsass, the very middle of it, Bordnemona, where, where the work started. Well, they worked from 1 to 14, and then they worked the rest of it after. And you remember day one, the very first day? The very first day, because how I remember it is, three fellas came down to us. One of them 
two of them, the three of them were locals, and an engineer called Switzers. And he, he had no sight in one eye. He was in the war or something, an engineer in the 1418 war, and Switzers, that big place in Dublin, he was one of them. I was a young lad at the time, and of course, things times wasn't too good. He was mad to get me to, he was going to build a house. He gave him a hand at it, and he gave me my papers as a carpenter or a tradesman, and he built a house near Port Arlington. Now oh, he's long dead and gone, the poor fella. Neddy Dinner, Paddy Gorman, and Switzers. No, that was the three, yeah, the engineer. Con O'Shea from Kerry was a lorry driver during the emergency. The time of the fuel importers. We were actually hired to see two by the fuel importers like that. Yeah. During the top of the time of the war, the big, remember the big camps? I used on the Phoenix part. That in this. No, the high load we clamped away up in them as high we could go. And Khan recalls an incident one time on a bridge in North Kildare. One time in Kildare. The scow bridge, they called it. And to the bridge, you you go up like that, and very steep, and then, you know, to remind you of a dog that that he go up on the table, look, and that his legs, he'd be up in his leg, and his back, no. <laughs> then, there he was, stopped. I fell asleep in it anyway. And a woman called me in the morning, around seven o'clock. She was bringing home the cows. I was one of them tapping at the window. Oh, my poor fellow, so she, I suppose she was there all night. I woke up. And commanded she would get a mug of tea, and I did. And they went, mug of tea, and I And I got a man of Mike Phillips's anyway. The command, they were great friends of mine. Brought up the lorry, fixed me up again, and hit for Dublin. Kathleen Doherty grew up close to Kyle Duve, a village built by Bordnamona. I remember when they built the village, and I remember the day that it was blessed, the village, the houses. And that was in the 50s, I'd say. Then we had a new church built to accommodate the new people. Bit of a row rose over that. They wanted the village, and the people of Shimahoe wanted it down here, because there was no church for years, only Staplestown. And tell me more about the, the, pe- the kind of people that came up here. They came from Kerry and Cork and Galway all over the place. Men, all mostly men, of course. And they were in billets. And we went to school in the billets when the school, Timo School, was being renovated. There were, we were allotted one of the billets to go to, for the school. And we had to go up to the billet to school. And this was a whole village that was built up for they the built workers. 160 houses are built in Kyldove. Yeah. There's 160 houses, Bodemona village. And did these men settle and marry A locally? lot of them married local girls. They did. A lot of them married local girls. A lot of the men are still around. Yeah. They settled there? Oh, they settled here, yeah. When the village, the houses were built for them, for the workers. But... And were these seasonal workers, or were they no, full-time? No, no, they were there full-time, they were full-time. They used to start cutting the turf, I think it was in March. They had these machines, baggers, they used to call them, were cutting the turf, and they were um, uh, part or what do you call it, um, full, full-time workers, around the clock. What do you call that? Um, oh, shift workers. 
They went round the whole oh, round. They worked day and night. Day and night when the season was in. And then in the summertime, all the locals used to be footing the turf. All the young lads would be there making money. So much a plot. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and, yeah. and were the, uh, I suppose the, the, the local men must have been a little bit annoyed that... Uh, but they were that, working there too, you know. Yeah, but they must have been annoyed that all the 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 lads coming up from the country yeah. were taking all <laughs> taking the girls. Taking the women. I sp- they probably were. But a lot of them stayed, a lot of them stayed, you know, married in and they had their house up in Kyle up there. And a lot of them came with their wives who brought up their wives and children. Went to school in Timahotel, the school in Kyle Love was built for them. Yeah. And then there was a great social life as well. There used to be carnival every summer in the, in the camp. And Whittaker, Todd... No, what was his name? Todd Andrews, wasn't it? That's right, yeah. He was the man that um, used to come there for the, the carnivals. He opened the carnival and he was head of Bonamore at the stage. Todd Andrews. And did they build a, a dance hall? And no, the marquee to come would have a carnival. Yeah. Every summer there'd be a carnival and the Gallagher scale band and the Real come in their turn. We used to have great, for a week, the carnival. Then there'd be car drives at, at Christmas. We used to have car drive and a Cayley the following Sunday night. And we used to go to Mass there till the church was built. In, in the, the dining hall. In yeah. the dining hall. Oh, yes. There was a dining hall at the camp. And there's where the Mass was held, the local the Mass. And it's it's fascinating that in your lifetime here that you would have seen a whole village developed uh, by yeah. Bordnemona. That's right. Uh, it's extraordinary, and 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 these all these, it was like an army, was it? it there was an awful lot of people in it. Uh, six hundred. I was just reading up the book there today. Six hundred pe- men were there at one stage. Yeah. Working on the bog. Of course, there was a lot of manual labour in it at that time. Do you know until the machines machinery came in then. And they put down miles and miles of track, railway tracks, to bring the turf across the bog and all this. Did you see the track going down? I didn't see the track going down, but I've seen the track. Yeah. You, oh no, you didn't come across the three roads, you'd have passed over the track. Yeah. It's still there, the level crossing, the Bordemona level crossing. Was there constant uh, noise from the diggers? And, oh, they up the middle of the bog, you wouldn't hear them. They were up the middle of the bog. The men used to go out at night, and the different shifts, up at the middle of the bog. A migrant worker, Willie Hayes from Carlow, recalls working with migrant workers from the Gaeltacht. And I remember working with two men from Galway. There were two great men to work cut off, and that was one more of English. Hmm. And I remember... One day, God, I can remember it happened in 1944. I'll tell you that. And they had to cut the shot, the shot, the for 10 inches, you see. But this lad was carrying two inches at a time. One shot was 15 inches, and the other 10. You see. So we just did the walking gang, walk, the, we had to call walking gang at that time, was it? And he made a raid. The, the lad that was cutting turned on him, they see. So, see, to know why didn't he warn him, they see, that, he was, that your man was on the go. And 
Ale zajko, że Ale zajko, że mam was. The lad on the bank says to the lad on the Brazilian, he says, Ah, he says, Niachame, and fucking bastard, they talked. Mary Kyle recalls her days growing up in Allenwood and the importance paid to the storing of turf and the saving of food for the winter months. You see, the concentration was on having plenty of fuel for the winter. And as I say, when I would bring that home, my father would build this huge clamp of turf. Oh, it was very, very long altogether and wide. And there was a very particular way in which the outside of it was set and like every all you could throw into the end. And then it was so finished off, you see, to protect it so that the rain didn't get into mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. And having the pit of potatoes, and I don't ever remember rats eating them. But like I can visualize my father and the big pit and uh, today people will say clods of grass. But back then we call them scraws, big, great big squares of thick grass cut and laid over the potatoes. When I went in, uh, there was a lot of it it was beginning to produce peat when I went in. Civil engineer Finbar Callanan worked on building a network of roads, bridges and track lines through the bogs in the 1950s. Well, that had been my job. I took over from a man called Martin Kelly, who was a very nice man from Galway, and he tipped me off on the, on the techniques. But when you would look down at the village that I lived in first, the Bordemona village, and the difference between that and what you normally see in the country, there was excellence. Oh, so what, what was it called, that village? Kilcormick. Well, that was under the control of a janitor. And there was rose beds, there were beautiful lawns, children playing, no damage to anything. And when people see that, the, the, the respect is normal. And the one thing that was there was there was an absolute supervision. It wasn't the guards or anything else, the janitor. And the majority of the people from the village, of course, were working for Bordemont. They were out in, yeah. And, and, and people were coming up from the Boer area and Eden Derry and as far as that, you know. Mm-hmm. They had a bike, they had cars. Uh. <laughs> Kieran Kelly from Shannon Bridge worked with Bordemona on the road transport and used to drive the Bordemona truck in parades and agricultural shows around the country. The first man I, 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 I worked under was, uh, he's a temporary man, Jimmy Mooney. And Lord of mercy, he's dead now, so he got married. He lived over in the next village here. Jimmy was the first man I started working under. And uh, I spent uh, about, I started there in 1955, and I spent about five years there on the bog and then I got in on the road transport end of it and I spent 33 years at that mm-hmm. on the road transport and in, in saying that I travelled the whole country north, south, east and west and all, collecting, delivering i done um, parades for them the, the, the St. Patrick's Day Parade in Dublin I, did, I even did the one in Belfast a parade in Belfast for, <coughs> for them there that I was asked to do it, and I counted it a privilege, and I got up and I seen I I I I, I seen the country through Bordemona, you know. As I say, I was thirty three years on the road for them there. 
And Kieran Kelly's wife Eilish grew up in Furban and remembers supplying vegetables to the Bordnamona workers in Taranbog. The other bog, Taranbog, it started with what they called the huts. All people came from Mayo and Connemara and everywhere and lived there. In my young time, young days now, they were all working out there. There was, there were, what were they made? Um, kind of tin huts. Uh, or what they the Nissen huts. Nissen you know? huts, yes. Yeah, yeah. And they were working there. And I can remember when I was at home, my father started growing vegetables for it. And I can remember going out there in the horse's cart with the big load of cabbage and carrots and everything. John Joe Kine recall Retired Chief Executive Paddy Hughes. When this energy crisis was going on, what what, what position had you in in Bordnamona? Uh, my position in seventy two was in charge of transport in Derry Green uh, and the quality end of uh, production, looking at making sure the quality of peat as produced was to the proper standards. In seventy three, when the energy crisis hit, I was moved for the first time into a sodpeat works in charge of the Timahoe works in County Kildare. And that's where I began to see the real pressure on sodpeat supplies. Lorries at that stage were queuing up overnight and very often when you drove into the works in the morning, no matter which direction you came from, you had a mile and a half of lorries on either side outside your works waiting for sunpeat. And as the energy crisis got worse, it ended up that Bordemona in the late 70s, early 80s had to ration its sod turf and its briquettes to customers. That was the only way that any sense could be made out of what was happening. And Paddy Hughes recalls being chairman of a task force set up in the 1970s. When the new managing director came in, there was a look at everybody's position, obviously, and I was challenged to take on the chairmanship of a task force to look at the Bordemona structure and to see how we were going to get out of the situation we were in. And that task force, which comprised four other Bordemona personnel and one external consultant, we worked for about nine months examining on a, a root and branch basis every system, everything that happened in, was happening in Bordemona. And here Paddy Hughes points out the different developments at Bordemona in the 1970s. Business was now millpeat production to the ESB and to the briquette factories, solid fuel, which was the marketing of those briquettes and sod turf, and horticultural peat, which was the marketing of horticultural products, not alone here in Ireland. Indeed, Ireland, while we had 90% of the horticultural market in Ireland, it was only 5% of Bordemona's total market, so we were all across Europe with horticulture. And we proposed a setting up of each of those businesses on an absolutely separate basis. That the company should become, instead of being a statutory corporation or a commercial semi-state, that the company should become a PLC, that each of the businesses should be set up as limited liability companies. Well, we've come to the end of this week's podcast, The Oral History of Peat Industry in Ireland. I hope you enjoyed listening and 
If you would like to look at the full collection, because I can tell you there are many, many people recorded for this project, and you can see the list on our website, that's www.irishlifeandlore.com. I'm Maurice O'Keefe, and I look forward to bringing you another podcast next week.